Welcome to Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion and culture with the personalities that shape it. My guest this week is Ryan Schreiber. Ryan is the founder of the online music magazine Pitchfork. If you're familiar with music, you know what Pitchfork is. Since 1996, they've been providing the original hot takes and reviews of everything that you should and shouldn't listen to. Ryan is the man behind it all. We spoke about starting a business and not giving up on it, music merch becoming fashion staples, and why everyone in fashion seems to be obsessed with the Grateful Dead again. Let's do it. Mr. Ryan Schreiber, I am honored and it is a pleasure to sit and chat with you. Thanks. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. Um, how, how the hell are you doing? I'm doing really good. I can't complain. Everything's well. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Pitchfork, which is, I mean, you are like Mr. Pitchfork. We'll talk a bit about your background, kind of how you got started and uh, what's happening over at the offices. Sure. So real quick, there's, I'll give a brief introduction of what I know of you and you can correct me on this, but you're a Midwest guy, right? Yeah, I am. I'm from uh, Minneapolis originally. All right. Yeah. So like you and Jim Moore, like everyone cool is from the Midwest. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, the Midwest was great. I mean, Minneapolis was a great place to grow up. Um, it's being Bob Dylan like, town, right? Yeah, you know, it is. It's, uh, it's Bob Dylan. It's Prince. Um, oh, but shit. more importantly, um, <laughs> I actually grew up in Minnetonka, which is, you know, of Lake Minnetonka fame from the Purple Rain, the movie. It's where he baptizes Apollonia and the waters of Lake Minnetonka. Um, and so I grew up like really with, with Prince being sort of omnipresent like he was really even though you know he's not the kind of guy that you're going to see uh, walking around town or you know right and some people claim to see him riding a bike and stuff like that you know but i i i he's he was somebody who's really really just culturally in the air there and um he's uh he's really he's like my number one of all time but having that kind of influence around you know minneapolis is a pretty um it's it's a it's a it's a it's sort of a socially liberal place, but in some ways culturally conservative. So yeah. Prince being a byproduct of that is, um, you know, is is uh, he's he's definitely an unusual character. So kind of having him around as sort of an example of like that you could really be this, you know, kind of a, a, a little bit of a weirdo. I mean, nobody aspires to be. Or maybe some people do aspire to be like as weird as Prince, but like, um, you know, just it, it there's a sort of certain freedom that he represented there. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really interesting. Like in terms of Prince, like, did you have like a street gang and you kind of bike over to his house and like look at it or something like, like some sort of Goonies thing? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> no, but actually the Paisley Park Studios was about five miles down the road from where I started Pitchfork and I used to uh, pass it. It was not just naturally on my route on my way to school. So every morning I'd drive by listening to like college radio and like kind of peer and like the, the gates and see if like, well, I wonder if he's in there right now. Yeah, and I didn't know, right? I didn't know until years <laughs> later that he actually lived there the whole time. So it was like, it was kind of more surreal to find that out. But um, yeah, it's, uh, he was, the, having that studio down the road, it was always a, a, a constant source of intrigue for me. Yeah. So you started Pitchfork in 96. And I think at the time, you're, you're super, wait, 96 is correct, right? 96 is right, Okay. Yeah. And you're pretty ahead of your time in terms of like music journalism and the fact that, because I think right what in the 90s, everything was, it was about like Rolling Stone, right? Yeah, it was really about, for me, it was about spin and a lot oh, of spin, the underground right. publications or more indie-leaning publications like Magnet, Raygun, Puncture, stuff like that. And, um, and because there was no real easy way of finding music online yet, it was still so primitive. That, that was my, my sort of route to discovery for a lot of music. It would be that 
uh, college radio, but I consumed music magazines and music publications like voraciously. It was like kind of, uh, I've, you know, I'm really obsessed with music and always have been. So as much time as I can spend thinking about it, I will. And, um, and I think that, uh, that having, um, those magazines around and then being sort of introduced to the web and seeing immediately that it, what, what a, what a great, um, and natural sort of publishing, um, you know, resource it was. Right. Um, I just sort of put, put the dots together. I mean, I think at that time, a lot of my uh, friends and people in the uh, Minneapolis community were putting together like zines where they would get to right. interview, you know, like people from like Fugazi or, you know, whatever other punk bands and they'd get, you know, 15 minutes on the phone and they put the interview in their, in their zine with a circulation of like 200 copies around town. I was like, God, <laughs> It just seems like if I put this on the web, it has a potentially longer life, could reach more people. Let's just make a zine and put it on the internet. Right. And like the, the web at that time, I mean, for me, so I, I started cruising around the internet in the 90s and it was basically message boards and AOL and some messenger. Like I was in a bunch of punk rock boards that, you know, you'd find out when a band was coming to town and, but there was really, that was it. That or you hung out at the local record store, which they hated me. Right. Because I would same. just ask questions. Same, same. <laughs> yeah, I was there all the time. And um, and I, I still uh, am in contact with some of the guys at the record stores that I used to hang out with, uh, hang, hang out at as a, as a teenager. But yeah, you know, you're a constant nuisance. But they also kind of loved it because they they understood that they were kind of this gateway for you. And they're obviously there in the first place because they love music. So, right. you know, you're, you're interfering with their job, but also in a way like you're kind of part of their job. Yeah. What, how do you think you, like, you got into music anyway? Was it a family thing? Was it, you know? No, it wasn't a family thing. Actually, I, I really, I can't really explain it because I was just, uh, you know, I, I was really just kind of born with this music obsession. I don't really know where it came from or how I got it. But um, my parents um, were kind of lower middle class uh, people and they they weren't really very tuned to any kind of the arts at all, really. You know, they... Um, uh, they, they had some records around and they recognized from like a pretty early age that I would kind of gravitate towards music or I would be, they could make me stop crying by putting music on and things like that. <laughs> right. So, um, but I, I, I was always drawn to it. I was always like, that was where I spent like the majority of like my time from the earliest point that I can remember is sitting in front of the stereo and they eventually realized, well, if we bring him records home, he'll be occupied for hours. Yeah. And um, what, what was the stuff that you were listening to at that time? Um, I was really listening to whatever they, they would bring me and they, they, they would tend to go to like, you know, like, uh, the discount department stores and come home with records that were like, uh, like a stack of records that were discount records, you know? So it'd be like these weird fifties and sixties compilations. A lot of the stuff was like, um, you know, country music and stuff that they liked. Um, but really when, um, I had uh, a godmother who used to bring me, uh, more like contemporary stuff and she would bring me disco and I would go crazy for disco stuff. I loved it. And that was, so disco is really like sort of my first love. Like Bee Gees? Like disco? Uh, yeah. Bee Gees, um, Captain Donna Sunshine. Summer, um, Coca Cabana by Barry Manilow and, and all, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but that like Stevie Nicks, um, all that kind of music, like she would bring it around and, and it would be that disco and like new wave. And, um, <laughs> That's awesome. and so I was like, super, super into it. Anytime she'd bring me records, I get super excited. Right. 
Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump forward real quick. So you you make Pitchfork, and you're you're kind of this renegade entrepreneur. And from what I read, the first ad, or like basically, Pitchfork became a business because a record store gave you 500 bucks to, to post it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's well. I had been doing Pitchfork at that point for probably three, two or three years, about three okay. years. And um and it it had gotten to a point where it was at least like a notable you know zine um whether uh, in the sort of xenosphere or whatever you know so it was like um they we had a we had a maybe two thousand readers a day or something and, but it was significant enough that that because they were online and we were online they thought hey let's put a banner on that how much would it cost and I'm like uh, I don't know you know you want to be the only ad uh, okay well figure something out right. it was like five hundred dollars we kind of agreed on and um and so that was supplemental income and basically just like the my the first sort of ad that you know that that generated any kind of revenue at all off pitchfork so. yeah and I, just like a quick sidebar on this you had another hustle at the time right you had a nine to five I did have a nine to five. I was actually, well, I had worked in a record store um, and I worked in a series of record stores that paid something like $6 an hour. And so that was just sort of, you know, that was barely getting by. And my dad wanted me to get a real job, um, which he had a pretty loose definition of what a real job was at that point for me. But um, he made me answer this ad for telemarketing in, um, in, uh, in the paper that was uh, for a mortgage company. So I went and interviewed and got this job. And the way that it worked was I could go in 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. and make like the theory was you could make like, tw- you know, full time wages part time if you were right. a marketer. Right. I've read that before. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, we'll see about this. But it was just kind of a way to kind of, you know, quiet my dad up and like, you know, try and do something that would bring in something for me um and um but i turned out to be kind of a good telemarketer <laughs> i mean you have a good voice i mean we're, i'm listening right now while we're recording i'm like yeah this is good <laughs> thanks not much EQ required this is great <laughs> yeah um no it it was uh it ended up you know it ended up being pretty good like i ended up being able to make about 20 dollars an hour doing it and it was just kind of like getting people to come in and refinance mortgages. It was like actually calling people and asking them very invasive questions. It was, you know, what's your, mor- like, how much do you owe on your mortgage? Oh, like, God. what's your interest rate? And like, <laughs> is that a 30 year term or a 15 year? And like, is it a variable? Is it adjustable? Like they had it, they, you went through a whole series of training to like know what to ask. And if there were the, the stats were too high or something, it was like, come see our loan officer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing this. And then meanwhile, at home or at night, I would assume you you're what you know constantly listening to albums and writing reviews yeah you know i guess i started i started writing reviews pretty much obviously that was kind of the basis of the thing from the outset but mm-hmm. at that at that time this was about 2 years into it and so i was i was really i was working on building a network of of people who were who were passionate about music who could write about it who could write well about it and thoughtfully um or so I thought at the time and the, um, uh, and essentially because I had no, you know, there was no revenue of any sort. It was a passion project. I was like basically sending them free CDs and they would write a review in exchange for like the music. Right. Right. Um, and so I had, I was able to probably by 99 build up a, probably about 50 contributors. Holy um, shit, I didn't know you had that many at that time. Yeah, you know, around 97 or 98, I started to go, okay, well, let's do five record reviews a day. Let's bump it up from two and, like, get a whole bunch of people in to write about it. Yeah. So I was editing these, you know, like, two-paragraph record reviews um, and working on 
talking to labels um, to get them to send stuff, to set up interviews, and like kind of working with my network to try to get them to turn in reviews on time and, and all of that stuff. But I was doing that from nine to five and then like going in and telemarketing. And um, what was actually crazy is that I, I was good enough at telemarketing that like it almost became my actual job. Um, Wait, for real? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, uh, fork in the road here. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, I kind of dodged a bullet here because for a minute, um, I actually was managing a room of telemarketers and, um, I was 20 maybe okay. at the time or yeah, 20 or 21. Yeah. And so, but I was managing a whole room of these people and they would get me to come in and, and do it during full-time hours. And I hated it. I hated <laughs> it so much. Um, it was just, it was such a grind and right. I kind of like, wasn't really sure whether we were actually helping people or hurting them. You know, it's just like, it was like, there was a total gray area. You know, you couldn't know what, what was actually happening once these people had come in to see these loan officers. So it was really, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't something that, that I aspired to long term and it probably lasted about six months before I was like, you know what? I made just as much money doing this part time. I'm going to go back to doing that and I'm going to work towards, um, moving to Chicago. Right. And so that's, that's when, for me, that's when I first learned about Pitchfork. Cause I think I got into it, I would say like 2002 or three. So I was in high school and all my friends in the punk rock boards you know, because I think we would try to go see like dismemberment plan and all that yeah. sort of stuff at night. And Pitchfork was the site that you had to go to. I mean, it was it. This is when Pitchfork becomes sort of legendary in my mind. And every single, I felt so stupid. I kind of hated Pitchfork. I'll be honest, <laughs> because every band that was on there, I had no idea who they were. Yeah. And, the only way I could be cool was knowing who these bands were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess um, you know, it was really. I guess at that point, because we were already like really trying to cover everything that was that we felt was relevant within underground music but also trying to expose people to new stuff that wasn't kind of breaking through and the dismemberment plan was one of those groups that we that that wasn't getting a lot of attention that we loved at the time so we were very like vocal about them and gave them very you know high scores and stuff like that but it was um it was that was right when i first moved to chicago so i moved there in like march of 99 Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I moved there kind of with nothing. I actually sold a bunch of records on eBay, which at that point was very like fledgling and new and mm -hmm. you could get outlandish prices for like not very rare records because you're selling them globally, right? Like you're, That's you a know, good point. Yeah. so, so there was like a market for these records that up to that point had been hard to obtain. Um, and I just uh, managed to just sell off a bunch of my collection and I'd saved up some money and sold my car and i think i moved to chicago with like five thousand dollars with uh, and that was like to put down on my you know security deposit for my apartment and everything so i moved there sort of with nothing and um and was and, and i didn't have a fallback plan i didn't give myself a fallback plan because i knew that i was not really incentivized towards like actually turning this into a business unless i absolutely had to right right selling ads um was not like the main motivation it was sort of the you know the kind of necessary evil or not even evil because i was selling just to like record labels and stuff like that it was yeah. like just sending out mass emails but um but yeah it was um I, I knew that I, that, that, that was kind of the crucial element that I had to focus on. So I did that and I kind of bombed out of Chicago after a few months. <laughs> the first, uh, I don't know, after the first year I ended up like owing like four months back rent to my landlord. I had to move like to a, uh, 
I had to go back to Minnesota, kind of with my tail between my legs. And oh, damn! Yeah, yeah, I had to go back. Um, I, I actually, my parents had this like tiny little cottage, like eight hundred square feet. It was on a lake uh, in rural, extremely rural Minnesota, like three hours outside of Minneapolis, and. Um, and I, I went back and lived there for a summer. Um, they kind of just let me live in it uh, up until it became winter and the cottage was like no longer winterized or whatever, you know, right, couldn't right. do that. So, so yeah, I basically had the summer to get back on my feet and I was like, I'm not gonna not like end up back here. I'm just like, I was really driven and that summer I, like cracked down and kind of like raised the uh, rates for advertising, got really serious about it. And then by the end of, by that fall, I was back, I was back in Chicago. Jeez. So I, I'm going to jump to, uh, a little bit further. So this is right before uh, you joined the partnership with Conde. I worked at Beggars for five or some odd years. And I'm just curious, like, how m- much did you know the, the, the power that you had? Because before, before you answer that, I just want to explain. When I worked at an indie label, um, Pitchfork was the biggest deal that we talked about in terms of if this if this band doesn't get a good review, like we're in trouble, you know. And luckily, I'm not on an NDA, so I can kind of say whatever I want. <laughs> right. But I mean, it was a whole separate meeting. It was a whole separate strategy, a whole separate marketing plan, and no one cared about anything else other than how is this going to work on Pitchfork. I mean, it was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, were you? When did it kick in that you were like, um, I think we're moving the needle for some of these bands. That happened kind of early on. Um, that happened as early as with the dismemberment plan, where we would see like, okay, that we're we're we think this band is doing something really good, and so we're going to be very vocal about that. And um and and at that point, it seemed like even as early as '99, that was we were moving the needle in some in some direction. Right. And um, it was really probably around uh, 2000 or 2001, 2002, really, that we felt like wow just you know by putting a band out there and like being very vocal about it people really trust what what we think about about music and right. it's 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 having it's having a larger impact um and that was really validating because you know i'm such i'm such a sort of evangelist about music part of what i love in like my day-to-day life like and just interacting with people is talking about music sharing it and like you know you're an evangelist for sure yeah totally i mean i i just really i i want people to like hear what i hear and something connect with it in that way and i want to get that from them too you know so like it's just this sort of exchanging of ideas um but but so it's a sort of natural, like it was, it was very, very cool that, that, that started to happen because people started to feel like they could trust what we were saying. And that if we were putting something out there, it, there was something to it. Right. And, you know, like during some of these meetings, you know, I remember, so I think your, your reviews would get published at what? It was at 1am, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause I remember, you know, I'd be in bed and I'd be on my laptop. This is, I guess, like, or iPhone at the time. And I'd see an email fly in at like 106 and it would just be either covered with expletives or tons and tons of like, yay, thank God, this is so good. Let's get this out immediately. Yeah. I mean, because then Pitchfork reviews start becoming stickers on like physical album sales. Right, yeah. And that, that's, that was a big deal to me. And I think one of the things that's, that's really cool about that and what you guys were doing is... So at that time, I had a blog. It wasn't a music blog, but I was trying to talk about clothes. Uh-huh. And I was trying to talk about, um, you know, fashion and other, you know, goofy stuff. But everyone else that was doing it, there was a strong fear and concern of blowback if you, if you gave your honest opinion. 
right? Right. And one of the things that Pitchfork has never failed to do is give their honest opinion. Like, you guys have crushed records that deserved it. And some would argue that it didn't. But I loved the honesty that, like, never, never yeah, failed. It's funny that fearlessness kind of came from the fact that, like, we were on the internet in the first place, which when we started, nobody else really was. Yeah. So we kind of felt like, well, no one's ever going to read this. So let's just go all <laughs> in, right? Um, and... Um, and the other part of it was that I felt a lot of the music publications that were out there were not being like really we're we're not really being very straightforward. Like they would the reviews that were in there would be like, well, if you kind, of, I'm not crazy about this personally, but if you like X, Y, and Z, you might be into it. And I'm like, that's not a review, you know. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I I um so I felt pretty. I felt I felt really you know and like especially if you're that young and you have like all this, this whole new world open to you and you're like you're just going through everything that's classic there's no sacred cows it's just like yeah you're it, we were just fearless about it and and i think that's something that's that's carried through to this day because i think you know what you do what you with any music fan anyone who's really truly a music fan or a movie fan or anything like you have very strong opinions about what's good and what's not good and that's that's legitimate that's that's something that all music fans share and i think that's a big part of um of why our you know reviews still resonate with people uh, the fact that like we're willing to call something out or you know or or diverge from kind of the consensus it's like what makes us us it's what what defines our taste it's part of why you kind of know people who really read us regularly kind of have a sense of like what we might be into or not be into yeah um but we're always kind of throwing curveballs i think as well um but uh yeah it's it's there you know in a time when music criticism is kind of disappearing from all the pages of of music publications or even websites um a lot of the kind of biggest other kind of sites or or publications out there don't reviews are really not a central part of what most of these publications do no and um and and i think that's 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 what sets us apart is this um that we've kind of doubled down on it, that our reviews have become longer and more in-depth and more kind of uh, holistic in their approach. And, and um, so it, it's, it's really important to me. I feel like without that, you know, I look at a lot of the sites and I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to kind of, what, what they feel like, what am I supposed to be gravitating towards right. here? Because you're just putting up a lot of stuff and it's all positive. And I can't follow all of it, you know. I'm just one man, you know. So like, it's fair. And I and I so I think that that regardless of whether people will agree with a specific review or not, I think they find that they're able to trust our opinion generally, and that's kind of that's where it all sort of stems from. Yeah, and I think too be, because you guys had so much integrity and authenticity with what you were doing. Um, even if someone didn't agree with it, they would, they'd be like, well, I mean, that's, that's what they said. And right. I think that that's something that's actually really beautiful and still to this day just kind of doesn't exist. Um, one of the things that I wanted to also discuss is, so you guys were definitely way ahead of your time in terms of like being the first sort of music magazine, music publication on the internet. But I distinctly remember meetings about Juan's Basement and Pitchfork TV, and how <laughs> yeah. Pitchfork TV, I mean, was be leaps and bounds be like beyond a ahead of its time. No one was really, I mean, because you had MTV, and good God, like Viacom yeah. didn't know what the hell they're doing with anything. Right, that and, was in a total identity crisis. I mean, as it has been forever and ever, yeah. but really at that Post point, Carson music Daily. was they're, nowhere to be found. Yeah, you know? and, and then 
Pitchfork TV starts where, and that to me, I think some of the best video performances I've ever seen have been on Pitchfork TV because it was Pitchfork TV and then you had like that dude, Blogotech. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that was, that was it. I mean, how did Pitchfork TV start? Um, it started because I felt, I, I honestly had had the idea for several years and it was just kind of waiting for the technology to catch up. Right. And so I was sort of kind of quietly developing it uh, for, for a long period of time thinking, well, when this comes around, what are we going to do? Because I like it, it's, there's so much potential and there's so much potential to do it in a different way and like mm -hmm. under a whole different set of standards where you don't have to worry about ratings. And um, so uh, so when I moved to New York in 2007, that was kind of my MO. Like I was, I was going to come here because I knew that New York, you had earlier access to artists than you would in Chicago, right. um, that it was always going to be a stop on people's uh, uh, tours, that so many of the artists even lived here. Yeah. And it was just sort of uh, freeform. Like, we, I knew that we would be able to kind of do whatever we wanted to do there. So, um, yeah, we went and bought a bunch of camera equipment and hired a couple of video editors. And... Um, and I brought in um, R.J. Bentler, who was uh, somebody who had worked on filming our um, our Pitchfork Festival in, pa in Chicago for uh, the first year, and who I liked immediately. And we just got coffee and, you know, talked about what we might do together. And we just kind of improvised it from, from that point on. At that point, we also, like, wanted it to be, like, we also wanted to, like, have a place where there were high res video music videos yeah. because there weren't it didn't exist. at that time. Like you'd look up a music video on, on YouTube and it'd be there, but it'd be like really grainy and really, you know, distorted and, and ugly and it would sound terrible. So I started calling the labels and being like, Hey, send us every music video that you've done and yep. we'll put up X, Y, and Z videos. And so every day we had like different music videos of maybe people hadn't seen before. And, um, and, and it didn't, it didn't take long. In fact, it was beggars who we first <laughs> called about this and they were like, well, we're going to have to come up with some kind of revenue sharing idea. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, <laughs> this is not going to work for very long, is it? <laughs> um, but, um, so we kind of, we kind of switched courses a little bit and we really started to focus on sessions um right. and interviews and, um, and we just, we just kind of adapted the landscape. It's finally that time of year. The air is cool and crisp, but it's not that cold yet. So you want that extra layer for the mornings and evenings. Do you know what I'm talking about? So what do you buy? You buy an overshirt, aka utility shirts, and the best utility shirts are from Taylor Stitch. I've been wearing my utility shirt over everything the past couple weeks, and it's that perfect extra layer. Taylor Stitch's utility shirts are heavy and hearty, featuring a triple needle chain stitch, a tailored fit in a high armhole, and yes, proudly made in California. Right now, Taylor Stitch is giving Blamo listeners a special offer for 20% off their first purchase. So visit taylorstitch.com forward slash Blamo and check it out. And so right now you, you know, we're kind of fast forward a little bit and Pitchfork has definitely evolved quite a bit with, with how people are consuming music and still reading music. and. Um, one of the things that you guys are getting ready to do is you got your Pitchfork 21 that you yeah. just announced, right? Yeah. Um, we did that at Matador, 
We had the Matador 21. Right. Are you ready for how insane this is going to be? <laughs> well, we're not doing it on the level that... I mean, we're not doing it in Vegas, for one, like Matador did. Smart move. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't... I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I, we're ready for it. I think we're doing... You know, we've got our own sort of approach to it. And we're, you know, we're doing a show. And I'm really excited about it because it's, it's cool that... Um, you know, we're going to be able to have a lot of artists there who have, who we kind of feel like have been close to Pitchfork or like that Pitchfork has been very, um, Animal Collective. Yeah. Animal Collective being, being, being the, the one that's announced at this point. And, and, uh, and the fact that they're going to come and do song tongs is pretty cool because Animal Collective have, um, a sort of reputation for live shows. They're always performing. They'll put out a record and they'll go on tour for it and they'll only play what's coming off the next record. Like right. that, that's live is, is animal. The, the sort of live setup is animal collectives like workshop for their next album. Yeah. So it's really rare. Like they'll throw, they'll throw, you know, the audience, like, you know, a song or two that, that they want to hear, but otherwise it's just kind of like, it's sort of a free-form jam session. You're not really sure where it's going. Um, and so for them to do something where they're actively looking back and playing an album in full um, is really rare. And, and I, think it, I think it might be the only time that, that, that this will happen. So, I've seen Animal Collective like six or seven times and never heard Sung Tongs. Right. So yeah, exactly. It's not. They usually don't go back that far if they do. You know, when they do play songs that are older. So it, it, I'm super excited because that's an album that it's really one of my favorite albums ever, and it's uh, it's I think I think it's a record that means a lot to a lot of people. Right. Um. One of the other things that uh, you guys, I'd love to kind of pick your brain about is, so you're you're definitely like at the center of music and as you know, music and the way that culture is kind of intersecting, like. Musicians are cultural icons, just the way that you would have like NBA, NBA folks do this. Um, but one of the things that's happening right now is merch and like music merch, I think is a huge deal. And this is really weird. And I'm just, I want to ask you, why is everyone really into the Grateful Dead again? <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, the Grateful Dead, they, they, they there's there's sort of a lot of reasons that I think the Grateful Dead are kind of back in vogue or something. You know, I think that they are, uh, for one thing, they're a band that within the sort of independent music community didn't get it to do for a long time. It seemed to sort of represent a sort of a culture that was kind of at odds with like, you know, this sort of like hipster art community culture. Right. Um, because, you know, you had like, that was a very narrowly defined scene for a very long time, right? And and as it's, I think as it started to open up, the Grateful Dead have become recognized a lot more as, uh, as part of, part of the whole lineage, right? Because it's hippie culture. And, and I think too, there were like a lot of cliches kind of associated with it too, right? So like, yeah. it was something that people were kind of just like, okay, well, this is, you know, we've, we've seen this, we've been to head shops, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's happened, but, but it, but I think, you know, they represent so there's, I think they they just sort of represent kind of all sides of, of counterculture as well. And I think that the fact that they're overlooked by so many people still, and at the same time have troves of music that you could dive into and just get lost in forever. Yeah. Um, it makes them a constant, a constant point of like, you're able to return to that music and always just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's not, there's not a lot of artists like that. That's a really good point. Damn. That's a, that's a really Good point. I didn't think of that. I mean, there's in terms of like all the live recordings that were happening at that and, time. And the live recordings are really where I think, you know, a lot of people who are very into the Grateful Dead find, you know, that that's 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 the music 
that the Grateful Dead made that resonates, I think, most strongly to people now. Right. It's just the how these how they how they formed as a unit, how they were to like how they worked together as a unit to kind of like jump off from their songs and take them to these whole other sort of exploratory worlds and um and and how how greatly the 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 songs could vary from night to night. Yeah. And like it's interesting because so the, one of the things I walk down the street, I see the steal your face logo all the time. Yeah. You see it with dudes like that are waiting to go into fashion shows and all that other stuff. You have like Jeremy Dean of Dean's Nuts, who's also I think he's on merch for you guys too. Yeah. Um, who did the the Black Flag, Grateful Dead sort of collaboration. Yeah. And I like I think the the weird thing is like there's a lot of people who are rocking a steal your face thing and basically just know like <laughs> I don't know. They're like, oh, I know the I Will Get By song. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because <laughs> uh, no, you don't that, see that with fish. Yeah. No one wants to wear a fish shirt. No, the fish logo is ugly. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I agree. I think it's aesthetically, like, you know, not, not appealing. And I, and, and I think that's one of the things with, with band merch is that you have these very iconic logos yeah. that is, you know, as much as somebody might wear something that, that's, just a, that's just a cool or iconic logo because it happens to look good with what else... What the what the rest of the output they they put together like, you know, um, the is the black flag logo like radically different from the Adidas stripes like aesthetically maybe yeah. not you know, um, but I think too that it also kind of represents something about people that you know ideally when they wear these things that they're kind of like they're kind of nodding to subculture that they're either connected to or want to be part of, um, and there's so and and I think that because music is shared now in this sort of ethereal way where it's just online files it's something that just exists on your computer there's not a lot of ways to represent like a music collection a lot of people don't collect vinyl and uh, don't care about that part of the world and so this this is kind of their way of putting out like this is this this is who i am as as a consumer of culture and as uh, as somebody who participates in culture as much as as much as it is you know, aesthetically having aesthetic appeal. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. Like in terms of streaming music, one of the things that's happened for me, like so, my my aesthetic is if I like a band a lot, I buy their album. Period. Yeah, and I I have Spotify that I'll use to kind of find new music occasionally, Pitchfork, and then I'll use Apple Music because every freaking seven inch that I've bought and owned, I've ripped. So all the weird like Jay Retard seven inches that I've have I've ripped and I it's it's just not on you know it's not on Spotify this yeah. weird live recording of this dual seven inch that this band made that no one knows or cares about except me that's I I want to have that at all times yeah right but because of the streaming music there is these other decades that are popping up so like everyone you know I think that makes sense for the Grateful Dead is is no one has to, uh, like, it's easy to find. You're like, right. oh, what's the Grit Dead? I'll just pull it up. Oh, here's almost every album they've ever done. Yeah, exactly. And, like, you guys recently started reviewing, I mean, well, it's not recent. You've, you've reviewed records that have been out before, but one of the things that's, that's happening that I see more and more is albums that have come out, like, a long time ago, way before Pitchfork. Yeah, right. I mean, we've always reviewed reissues um, very since the very beginning of Pitchfork, but um, we've recently started doing, um, on Sundays, we'll now run um, reviews of albums that we've never covered that are uh, records with a, with an interesting backstory and kind of a lot to dig into, right? So, right. and we you kind did of, the Tom Petty albums. Post, yeah, yeah. Right, right. We've we sometimes we'll do like a slate of albums, like we did. 
Um, like for Madonna's birthday, we had like very few Madonna albums reviewed in the archives. So we went back and covered all of her, like four of her records. And, um, and we did that with Tom Petty. We did it with Prince. We did yeah. eight records for Prince. Um, and, and that's really fun too, to kind of, to do, because we're, when we're writing about these albums, we're trying to add something to the kind of dialogue around them that's not already part of it. And so in a lot of cases, what we're doing is we're kind of point, we're, we're looking sort of at the culture surrounding the record at that time and where it kind of fits within the greater, within the grand scheme of things and how it influenced culture around it. Um, right. And, and so when you read, like, for example, we did a, a review a, a while ago about Michael Jackson's dangerous and it starts out talking about, um, you know, about the black or white video premiering on Fox, uh, like after the Simpsons one night. And it's like, this is stuff that's sort of like esoteric if you weren't there, you know, but is really like informs the whole world of the record. And so we're talking about the Rodney King riots and, you know, and how this all plays into, um, you know, into, into sort of the politics of the record and, just the you know what's happening in the world around it so we're kind of kind of trying to place it in in a historical sense as well as um as just you know exploring the 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 more common ends of the record which is you know uh, how it was made where the artist was in a state of mind at that time who worked on it or where what it sampled etc right do you think this will ever happen with dave matthews band you know, that's, that's I hate really, the Dave Matthews band. It's, it's okay. Uh, I think <laughs> generationally, um, there's always things that come back and really surprise you. I never really thought that people would be, you know, that people would be very people who are like a little bit younger than me would be coming out now and being like boldly professing their love of sublime and third eye blind. But that's true. We are. And you know, is that valid? Sure. It's valid. I think it's totally valid. It's like, it might differ from what my sensibilities were at the time, because at that time it represented something else. There was this sort of whole cultural package around it that, you know, that, that played into what your perspective was on it. Like, Oh, this is what this type of person likes. And it's really not like that anymore. You know? No. Um, it really sublime was good though yeah yeah but dave matthews is bad (laughs) (laughs) yeah just for me you can i'm I'm not trying to get you to say well look no i mean i'm not i'm not uh at all averse to speaking ill of dave matthews but i think that um but you know i mean dave matthews is like you could kind of see if like things were shifted a little bit dave matthews being like sort of this clapped and ask you know i don't know what right it's like he's a sort of like uh, he's, he's this very, very large piece of culture that hasn't really been dissected yet. And that could, that's interesting in its own right. Because one of the things we like to do on these, in these Sunday reviews, well, when it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be a great album. It yeah. has to just be an interesting record to pick apart. Oh, that's so, okay. so I think in that way, like actually going back and kind of cover, like, you know, let's, let's really look at under the table and dreaming <laughs> and see what's there. You know, I think that could so be like, fun. Hey, you want a hat? You want to fray it? You want to make fun of all the kids that you go to high school with? Check yeah. out Dave Matthews Band. Exactly. Right. <laughs> the band that you know because you call him by a first name. <laughs> Dave. <laughs> Going to Dave. God. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure Stranger he's a nice things guy. have happened, you yeah. know, but I don't I, I can't name any of them. <laughs> <laughs> so when you guys are making some of these reviews, I mean, I I I'm I'm a little worried if I ask like how the sausage gets made here. 
Is there, are there times where like there are people around that are like, no, that album was great. And you're like, no, you're an idiot. It's totally bad. And this is what we're going with. Yeah. Um, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty democratic. Like we're always, we're always talking about music, um, on staff and and bringing more music to the table. So there's this constant discussion going on. That's like, that's, that's greater than just my own personal sensibility. Obviously that plays into it and I make the ultimate decision, but I also make the ultimate decision with, you know, with a lot of different perspectives and try and, you know, and also try to recognize, um, my sort of blind spots as, as, as a music fan, you know, every, every listener has different, um, uh, sort of a different wheelhouse and we have different things that really don't quite speak to us, but you still kind of rec- have to recognize things that are like, maybe they're not right down your lane, mm-hmm. but again, if, you know, if they're speaking to, uh, if their music is speaking to a lot of people on our staff, then like we need to recognize that. So, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty open dialogue, but of course there are like heated, you know, it gets heated sometimes like, uh, with the new brand new record that came out that got best new music. There were a couple of editors who were like, this is terrible. This is like, this band was never any good. They're totally Mm -hmm. overrated. I'm like, Dejan Tondu is pretty good. Yeah. Right. Exactly. (laughs) That's what I think. So, you know, and sometimes I think that's people not recognizing, you know, their own blind spots or their own, you know, person. But but for whatever the reason, you know, because which I'm just as guilty of. Um, but, you know, that was something that I felt really strongly. I thought that album was really, really good. And that is me speaking as somebody who's not generally a fan of of like emo at all. Like I think Pitchfork sort of anti emo stance yeah. for so many years is is partially due to that being one of my personal blind spots it's something that i oh. like personally have like really never connected with um and uh but but that was a record where i could listen to it go you know what there's really something here i enjoy this this is yeah. awesome and and see how it see how it appeals to their core fan base and people beyond it. So that was why that record really made sense for me. It's like, it's, this is not a record just for fans of this type of music. This, this goes beyond that. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about bands that are good here, are you guys, I assume are starting to work on your, your best albums of 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, don't know about this. I'm, I'm very, I'm very transparent. I don't know. I have a feeling that everyone is obsessed with the war on drugs. And to me, look, I I love Kurt Vile. I mm. worked with Kurt Vile. I know he's not in the war on drugs, but I know he was. You know, yeah, he was. And to me, war on drugs is great. But I usually am like, oh, cool. I'll go back to that Tom Petty album. Right. Like, yeah. But I think it's gonna. I don't know. I have a feeling that that's definitely gonna be everyone's best. Or you new might music. be like, I'll go back to that Don Henley record. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> Don Henley, dude. Age of Innocence, man, <laughs> or End of Innocence. Excuse that's me. Right. Yeah. Uh, um. But <laughs> I think like that's that's a record for me which blew my mind that it came out on a major label. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because it's really that's it's really the kind of record that ra- the major labels used to it used to be kind of their bread and butter, right? So it that's was. A, oh, that's a good point. You yeah. know, that's that to me is that makes that makes total sense in a historical kind of big picture sense. Um, but it is it's sort of an anomaly now. There's not a lot of music that's being made in that vein that's like that kind of polished and together and like the vision is really there. I mean there's there is, but you know, it, that's also a very specific kind of niche kind of pocket that they're exploring, which is this kind of late 80s heartland 
Yeah, Rock four on the floor style. groove. Exactly, yeah. but it's a lot. It's very shimmery and pretty too. They've got like synths in there that are kind of creating this whole other, you know, texture. Um, and I, I really, I really like that record a lot. And I think that that's that's an album where it's like even if you do, even if that's not you know kind of your wheelhouse, it's not really your lane of music. Um, it's something where where you you can at least see the see the appeal and see why it resonates with people. Right. Um, this is a sidebar question. What are your thoughts on Drake? I don't get Drake. I have, I like one, no, I like two Drake records. I like the ones where they were actual music. The first, the first couple. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the one with his head in the clouds is my favorite album. Yeah. It yeah. was like Drake beats Usher. But then the other stuff, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. Um, what? So Drake is complicated, right? Um, he's really complicated, and and I I I'm always kind of ping ponging back and forth between liking him, acknowledging that he's like actually really one of the greats in terms of like the the big like the the overarching you know pop music world, no right? Debate. I mean, I there's he's without a doubt he's one of the biggest artists in the world, and um and. To me, if if I have like a criticism of Drake, it's that he really doesn't change enough. Like a lot of his stuff really sounds. He's been really consistent. You can go all the way back to um, uh, what's that song? I know way too many people here right now that I didn't know last year. Yeah, you know that yeah, yeah. one, right? And that's like not that different from something like Passion Fruit or some of his more more recent music. So right. he's not. He manages to continue to be huge and continue to generate like huge hit songs that are in a very narrow kind of lane of existence. So uh, to me, I kind of wish that he'd be a little bit more adventurous and a little bit more out there. I think that he has that, that leeway. I think his fans would give him that. Um, But I think he also knows that this formula works really well. And I don't know if he's even like drawn towards like expanding his sound. So I think he's, you know, for me, I approach Drake on more of a song by song basis than an album by album basis. Um, that, that, well, that's kind of where music's going now. Like people, you know, like uh, not to to pull us off on it too different of a subject, but like the last John Mayer album, he basically re- released it in you know quarters, right? And then he put out the whole album. Yeah, it's it's I, I don't is that I don't know if the LP's dead, but I'm kind of worried that it is. Well, the LP is um, it's definitely changing um you know the fact that drake called his album like a playlist is very accurate mixtapes too yeah right i mean there's what's really the difference now between a mixtape and a proper album aside from like the budget behind it you know if anything um but in terms of how people approach mixtapes and albums like there's really no difference you know i agree um so mixtapes are albums i don't know it it is it's changing a lot and um and i think that um yeah, it's it's something where people who are used to engaging with albums still engage with albums, and I think that there's still room for people who are like younger and are used to things on a more track by track basis, kind of like listening to something as a bigger picture, you know, uh, as a whole piece. But um, you know, the album is not central like it was when it was um, uh, central to the conversation anyway, like it was when obviously when that was the format in which you purchased the music, right? Um, so in some ways, that's um kind of freeing and it's it's sort of it's changed a lot the way that i listen to music i do listen to a lot of songs on you know i i have this playlist of like new tracks from the year that 
um, that I spend probably more time listening to than I do with most albums. Oh, okay. Um, but at the same time, you know, when an album really connects with me, like something like the new King Cruel record, that's something that it just, you, you can take it apart piece by piece and like just listen to a certain tracks and enjoy those. But like the whole album is such a vibe. I agree. It's so good. Archie is a genius. He and really is. He, he, how old is he? He's like 23, 21? At most. At most 23 now. I think he's like 21. He's like, good God. because when he came out, that was like 2011. 2012 yeah he was zoo kid yeah and he had that like amazing voice and amazing lyrics and just like that delivery that was so um beyond his years and it's just like what an old soul you know yeah right um, and, and he's uh, kind of a funny looking guy god bless him i mean yeah. he's got the red hair pale skin i think he's got like uh gold or silver teeth put in now when i first met him he didn't have that right yeah i mean yeah. he's just he looks cool he does he looks very <laughs> cool i think he is he's just he's one of these people who is like has this innate you know inborn sense of cool like some people are just like that some people just get that gene you know yeah and he's one of them but uh but you know that album and i think you know you look back to like last year something like salon just seat at the table that's an album that right with the sort of i wouldn't really call them skits but these sort of interludes right that are that yeah it's are, like old master p for me <laughs> <laughs> <Kind of>. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's uh but but again you, you you know you can take those songs individually or you can listen to it as a whole piece and the whole piece is is really moving in a, in a way that just a track wouldn't be yeah. so there's a value to the to the album art form that is uh, that that I think can be more enriching than just the single track, right? Uh, I, we just got just a little bit of time left. I want to make sure I'm sensitive to it. Um, there's th some of the other stuff that you guys are doing. I know you do the Apple Music partnership uh, in terms of like tracks and selected stuff. That is basically how I feel. That I mean, I go to the site all the time, all the time, and I'll read reviews. I always want to see what the stuff you're talking about. But the fact that you have that Apple Music integration and stuff now is huge for me. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's how I'm getting, I mean, otherwise, I'm just going to keep listening to Steely Dan. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I'm just like, well, okay, 70s, I'll just stick in this decade. Yeah. Uh, and that's the only way I'm getting new music. Yeah. I mean, how else do, do you feel that Pitchfork's sort of expanding to, to meet weird people like me well i really i've always felt that having pitchfork present on as many mediums and platforms as is possible is like right. a, is only a good thing because um you know we uh the 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 site is kind of our core and then and then we have all these sort of like other branches and i think that with uh streaming music services in general with you know spotify apple music and all of these they all have sort of different um they all have sort of different uh, advantages, like, you know, and in different ways that people that people use them. Um, and so it's to me, it's really important for us to be present on those platforms, because I think, you know, that is really how people are, are getting music. Uh, uh, you know, the majority of people are getting music now. Mm -hmm. And so being able to engage with them in ways that are just like putting good music in front of them. And knowing they can come back to us to read more about it and get context, because that's really the thing that's missing in the in the music streaming world is the context. It's the it's the story. It's like, why should I care about this person other than the fact that I like this song? Why should I care about this artist? Yeah. You know, and um, and and we really we we try to, uh, you know, where whereas whereas something like Spotify is very algorithm based and is very very track by track oriented, um, you don't get any context and you don't. That's There's true, no sense yeah. of community around it. So you get this sort of like esoteric, like free, this sort of, free, you know, ethereal track. 
and there's nothing associated with it. So I feel like actually telling the stories around the music and also and also kind of having an eye towards what we think is going to matter in terms of where music is going more broadly, right? Because when you have um, things that are recommended to you based on an algorithm, it's not saying this is relevant in any way. It's saying you will, you might like this because you like X, Y, and Z. Yeah. But we're trying to take, we're trying to look at music in a, a more holistic, from a whole more holistic perspective where we're saying, you know, these are artists who are actually going to matter to more than just you. These are, these are artists who are actually going to shape taste and shape music beyond, um, you know, in their worlds or beyond their worlds um, in, a, in a much larger way. Um, and I, so I think that's, that's another thing that, that, um, that algorithms are, you know, that it's going to take a lot longer for algorithms to get that right. Yeah. And I, I know that Apple music is their, their big thing initially was like, oh, we don't do algorithms. We have real people writing it. Yeah. But the tough thing is with all due respect to Apple, I'm not here to, I used to work for them. I don't know who those people are. And so I don't really, I don't trust their opinion. I yeah. trust Pitchfork. Because it's shaped the bulk of my youth and and young adulthood as knowing what's good. So yeah. like it helps to have Pitchfork in there to to have that context. Well, and I for think me. that's that's kind of the idea. Like they yeah. have Pitchfork in there, and they have a lot of other different curators, that's right? True. So yeah. regardless of whether you're a music fan or not, like if you're interested in what GQ thinks is really good, like they're on the platform, and you can follow them, and like you can follow their taste in music. So uh, that's that. I think that's that's sort of the approach behind Apple Music, and I think it's I think it's a good and interesting approach. Um, and um, and it's certainly like it it's it's cool that we have managed to get, you know, a large following there and on Spotify as well, yeah. because it's, you know, I use all the, all of these services myself, like really, really regularly. That's how I listen to music now. So as well, I mean, I obviously like, I have a big vinyl setup at home and w when I'm off hours, like I listen to a lot of older music, um, or even newer stuff that I've ma managed to be able to get a hold of on vinyl. I have like a weird, trap collection of like trap lps oh really yeah oh, they're hard to find <laughs> yeah and um but i'm i've like yeah i've got you know like little uzi vert and all kinds of stuff and, and that's so fun to break out at parties like whenever i have parties or have people over it's always like playing vinyl you know but it's um but yeah you know i think uh it's it's a valid it's a valid approach and it's an interesting way for them to try to distinguish themselves this is awesome. So I, I just want to thank you so much for your time. This has been really, really special. Uh, I have two other questions. Um, one, you guys never reviewed my album that oh. I sent to you. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's fine. Uh. No, I'm, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> but I did. I sent, I sent my album and I was hoping it, but it's okay because that record sucked. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you just reviewed it for me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean... <laughs> yeah, you try to cover as much as you can, you know, it's, uh, we no. have, ultimately, it's, what is it, it's only something like 100 reviews a month or something, even at five a day, so. Yeah, no, you you're, know. you're good, um, it's, <laughs> it's fine, you that. didn't miss Thanks. anything out, this is awesome, well, thank you again so much for your time, really, really appreciate this, it was great, it's great sure, talking man. with you. Cool, I appreciate it, all right, talking to you too, bye. You've been listening to Blamo. If you like this episode, there's plenty more to dive into. Listen to Blamo on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, leave a review. It helps let others know and discover the show. Find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast, or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.